1: Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories.
0: Pasi Salberg is a Finnish educator and author who has worked all over the world advising folk about how to do education properly. He's someone we all listen to and respect. He really knows his stuff. Uh, we are very honoured to have him with us today on the Game Changers podcast. Parsi Salberg. let's go. Thank
1: you for the introduction, Phil. Uh, it's lovely to be with you, Phil, and it's also a privilege to be with you too, Parsi. I'm going to launch Straight into the very first question, and that is, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your story and and how you got to where you are today?
2: Uh, yeah, it's it's a long long story, like everybody's uh, at this uh, this age. But but you know, I, I normally I say that I'm a I'm a lifelong educator. I was born and raised in Finland. Went through my all education um, and most of my career in, in Finland as an educator. Uh, I was uh, te- I was teaching mathematics and science, and then training uh, teacher uh, teachers uh, in these same subjects in Finland for many years. Spend a, a, a significant amount of my time in uh, policy making, administration, and then uh, at the universities uh, in different parts of the world. And now I'm here in Australia after. Three years stint at the Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, and with the World Bank and uh, European Commission and other things. So, I think uh, I think it's really important for people who are listening to this to um, to keep in mind that you know how I come to uh, all these conversations about education and learning and and the future of schooling and other things. It's not just a uh, a research view or. Or, policymaker view. I, I, I consider myself as a teacher, still a practitioner. Uh, that's what, what I can do, uh, probably better than anything else. Um, and I, I bring to this conversation also the, the, uh, the point of view from Finland, of course, that I know very well. I, I lived almost 10 years in the United States. And as you said, I've been working in a number of countries around the world. So I, I, I try to kind of create a, a, a blend of different perspectives on. Particular questions that we will be probably talking about here as well. So it's not just a just an individual Finnish view or or something that is a strictly or kind of a research-based understanding. I, I I have a at this age that I have right now, I, I have a lot of professional experience and wisdom. Hopefully, also with me to to have a deeper and better conversation. Terrific. Driving. So I've been this the, the, yeah. This is my I've been in Australia now here in Sydney for. Uh, year and a half. So I'm, I am permanently here and, um, uh, and work at the University of New South Wales at the Konsky Institute there and I really look forward to uh, uh, the work ahead here.
0: Tremendous. Thanks very much, Parsi. Um you, you, you bring a wealth of experience and, and we'll, we'll happily validate your, uh, your putative claim towards wisdom. In your ni- 2019 book, Let the Children Play, you talk particularly about play and you talk about it as how children explore discover, fail, succeed, socialise and flourish. We want to start the conversation with this notion of play and the, and the, and the skills children gain from this construct. Um, tell us about its role in, in the commitment of schools to the acquisition of, of literacy, numeracy, all the other competencies in, uh, 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 that, that, that children need to thrive in their world
2: yeah it 's a great question to start, start with and and the, the the whole reason actually why my co author William Doyle and, and myself uh, decided to write a book this happened about five almost five years ago was our notion we have our own children uh, and through them and um, uh, and working in different parts of the world that there has been really a steady decline of uh, children's young children's access to play, particularly outdoor play. So we, we started to look at that issue more, more closely. And you don't you don't really need to read much about the power of play, what the not only what the educators and psychologists, but also what the, the, the pediatricians, the medical people say about the importance of play, to really understand that we we, we have we are making a major mistake um, that will cause a lot of headache later on in, in schooling. Uh, when we have reduced the time for children to play here in Australia in schools significantly, but overall in the world, the children are playing less and spending much more time indoors and uh, and using much more all kinds of other things that keep them uh, sitting still. Um, so, so that's I think the, the 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 main thing that we we wanted to bring to this conversation is that you know if we are seriously uh, aiming at um, having a school that will provide all children these important skills that they need in the world some people call them 21st century skills uh, but they are basically the generic skills like communication conflict resolution problem solving creativity all those nice things that schools are now required to do there's no other no better and cheaper way to do that than let the children play and, and let them play early on because many of the skills and habits of minds actually develop at the very early age. So it gets harder and harder in a school to m- make sure that all our children and young people will, um, will learn these skills if we don't study early on. So play for us was a really powerful idea.
0: Thank you for that, Pasi. It's, 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 it's important to understand the research in that. Um, in that very important area. Um, I have a practitioner theory that, and this is not a medical theory, that the rise in anxiety and depression and the decline in wellness that we see around the world in so many of our young people correlates to a lack of unstructured playtime in their lives. For parents and, and, and colleagues out there, how much time in a day should children be allowed to play for?
2: <laughs> it's impossible to give that type of uh, recipe, but you refer to, to medical, uh, uh, medical experts. You know, the interesting thing that we see around the world now is that the children's doctors, pediatricians, uh, more frequently than ever before, also giving the doctor what they call doctor's orders for parents regarding uh, children's play. And many parents ask the same question that you asked that what is the what is the time needed to you know realize these positive effects of play and the medical doctors are saying that you know let's uh, you know if if they had to say something they say that let's uh, let 's give all the children at least one hour free outdoor unstructured play a day um, and that 's what, what that was a minimum what the kids used to do in the in the early days but in our book we also say that, that this is what parents should do all the parents should take one hour of of their the, the, each and every day and take their kids outside if they can do it but in, in any any way give them free time to play with their toys or with one another but we also make a point that this is the same the same one hour rule should apply in schools that every school here in Australia and Finland and everywhere else should be organized in a way that children would have at least one hour time for themselves to play or engage in physical activity or do something else. So, you know, this two hour, if, if we, in an ideal world, if we could do that for all the children, it would mean that kids would have at least two hours a day to play uh, and learn these important skills. I think we would have a very different situation uh, by then.
1: I want to shift the conversation a little bit, Parsi, now to the issue of access and equity. Uh, in, in 2019, the Alice Springs Declaration, educational declaration, had two kind of key, key goals for education of the future. And goal one was that the Australian education system promotes excellence and equity. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about how you believe we can achieve true equity in learning, particularly here in Australia?
2: Yeah, it's a, another great question. I think you know this is also globally a common conversation and debate now. This excellence and equity. I think the first thing we should do here in Australia this is actually what the Konski Institute's contribution to the the Alice Springs Declaration a few months ago was. To to the first thing to do is to to change the order of this this title to call it equity and excellence <laughs> declaration because I, I think. Uh, you know, my view here in Australia is that we are not short of excellence. That we have, as I as I say often, that we have the the best schools in the world that I've seen, and I, I, and you should you should know that I've seen a lot of schools in in different countries, and I I haven't really seen better than the best schools here in Australia. Many of them are public schools. Uh, some of them are non-governmental schools but you, you know we know we know what excellence, excellence looks like we we know how to do that um, and and there are schools and individual people and thought leaders like yourself and many others who are who understand how to do this but equity is something that we don't understand we accept that and through our research at the Konski Institute we have we have evidence now that the most Australian uh, adults and parents see equity as a probably the, the most important thing in Australian education to go forward but we still don't understand what it is and it's, it's easy to equity is something that is easy to say and it, but if we don't know what it means if we don't know what people think about when, when they um, when they speak about equity in education it doesn't mean much and that's another finding that c- kind of a conclusion in our own study is that there are all sorts of ideas of what equity means ranging from you know having access to good quality schools and uh, um, you know helping all the children to uh, develop and, and flourish to their full potential and and then to the point that is closer to the equity that we um, we in our research and, and work mean that that equity should mean something that the students learning in school is not primarily determined by where they come from, who they are or who their parents are or where they live. In other words, that the system, uh, first of all, but then the school uh, would do everything that is necessary to make sure that most of the kids would beat the odds. In other words, would be able to um, kind of progress and grow further than they start points would otherwise indicate this is what we sometimes we call this resiliency in, in education but that's the kind of a thing that we don't you know these words for me whether it's excellence and equity or equity and excellence don't mean much unless we get into this hard conversation of what is equity what do we mean and and what does it mean and what do we need to do here to make sure that australian school system would be more equal and fair and equitable
0: So so we've got a very practical example of that happening around the world right now as we are shifting to it's either distant or remote or continuous or online learning depending on who you speak to as as we're we're all trying to deal with this pandemic um, and put into place good social distancing. The World Economic Forum last week published an article titled Three Ways the Coronavirus Pandemic Could Reshape Education. One issue they raised was that the digital divide could widen as only 60% of the globe's population is online. If we talk across Australia, particularly with um, uh, educators from state schools, um, they'll tell you that perhaps one in five students doesn't have access to the internet reliably at home. Now that we've made a transition online, be it temporary or semi-permanent or permanent, which children lose out?
2: Well, Well, We don't, we don't know. We haven't ever had an experiment like this, the, the, the same scale. And I'm looking at the same question now with my colleagues in, in Alberta, Canada, um, to try to to specifically answer that question. But I, I think the predictions that you mentioned and some of these early articles that we can read um, uh, this week and, and during the coming weeks are correct, saying that the... The digital divide that has been there since the the um, the birth of the digital technologies, really, that w- went all the way to the homes, will uh, probably mostly affect children who live in the communities or homes where they don't have a proper access or similar access to the or connect to the internet and services and schools than, than the others. But, you know, then there's another uh, aspect on this is that, you, you know, I'm, I'm, doing online, I'm doing online teaching here to my students uh, as we speak. And we have two boys at home who we homeschool because of this situation. I, I can tell you, I'm a professional, t- professional teacher. And, you know, teaching from home, making sure that the kids do what they need to do and that they learn using these online things is a hard thing to do. And and I, I think that even if you have the fastest broadband connection to the all the services and products that the schools and others are offering, that you know most parents have have no expertise in you know how to support and help their students in the particular form of learning, teaching, and learning that takes place in you know, online. So I think you know, there's going to be a lot of confusion and the, 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 we, we're going to see a lot of surprises as well uh, in a sense that there will be people who say that, oh, I thought that, you know, this would be kind of a good idea, but it's probably not. And um, and th- this idea of distance education or online learning um, has been probably too easily accepted and, and left a kind of a thing that, okay, you know, this, this, is, this is what everybody should do. But But probably most importantly, I think that the... The outcome that when we start to return back to normal or whatever, whatever the new the future will be, but when this uh, health crisis is is over, that I'm I'm almost sure that we're going to have masses of young children and uh, millions of parents who, when they when the kids return to school, that they look at the public schools and and other schools with a very different eyes the kids will realize that you know actually the school is a is a kind of a cool place to be that there's always somebody there to help me and there's always somebody there that i can uh, go and talk to uh, and there are always people there who share the same types of concerns and problems and troubles that i do who they do not always have at home so so i'm really i'm really kind of eager to see that you know how the kids will React when they when the schools reopen and they are back there. But you know, my guess would be that we we see a lot of happy faces and happy people, and and teachers will be appreciated and respected in different ways.
0: Yes, that um, that, that socialisation function of school is a very very important thing, and, and phys- physical proximity and, uh, is is so is so critical um, to to all sorts of relationship development and learning and growth and development, we just had um, had word back um, this morning from uh, a group of educators in Quebec, in Canada, and one of the things that they're learning already is that any sort of expectation that you can maintain distant or remote learning um, with the same sort of structures, is, is, is it just can't work. The, 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 you might start thinking it's five or six hours a day, it's actually more like three hours a day. Um, You might start thinking that you can do uh, classes, you can't do classes, you've got to do online learning. It's got to be asynchronous and you've got to give students more voice and agency. What's going to happen, do you think, when we get students all over the world who've had more voice and agency than they might in a traditional classroom, go back to an environment um, Mm. of a classroom?
2: I've I've been telling this already before this health crisis and educational educational situation started to change that now when young people have realized uh, since the last 15 16 months really that they have a voice and power also to change politics and and police, political thinking regarding climate change you know we have seen millions tens of millions of children. Uh, rallying and campaigning against the um the political status quo on on our environment That now when they when they because the young people know that they have this power um i think they're also going to use this power to change education and i've always said i I said this is unfortunate if if we leave it to children young people to tell us how the schools and education should change we should be we all of us three here and uh and all our colleagues should be the ones who would be leading this and and you know so showing young people and children that you know we understand what is ahead and we know that you know what type of things they need in the schools but if that doesn't happen then then of course the um the kids will use this power and facilities that they have to to make the change
1: i think it's really an interesting conversation because uh uh Phil and I Asi, are strong advocates, of course, for student agency and and moving towards a kind of more self-determined learning structure or, or construct or model for the young people in, in our care and in our schools. But I've been talking to some colleagues over the last couple of days who have, of course, been doing the remote learning with their students. And one of the observations they made uh, was that what's really happening here is, is it isn't really true remote Uh, sorry, distance learning or online learning. It's just school done differently. And and the kids are turning up, and and the way they've structured it is they're turning up for a class at 9 o'clock, as they would. Attendance is taken, and and they're even asking the teacher permission if they can get up from their seat to go fill their water bottle. So, you know, not much has changed so far in these first few days of of this. I'm hoping, though, that as the weeks unfold, we're going to start realizing the adults are going to start realizing the power of giving the students this, this autonomy to, to curate and create their own learning and their own outcomes. And i will be quite surprised about what happens. Because I know in my own context over the years, being a visual arts teacher, that was the norm of my class, you know, giving over total control to each young person because no outcome was the same. Uh, and and they and you still could measure great growth and success and, you know, uh, the skills they needed. And I'm just hoping that more and more adults in education will be able to see the possibility of what can come out of this experiment that we're currently in.
2: Yeah, you, you know, we with William Doyle, who is my co-author for Let the Children Playbook, we, we did this kind of a private uh, experiment last week with our children uh, who are, uh, you know, both of them are going to uh, to primary education um, or middle school and so we asked them to to design when 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 they understood that they're not going to go to school they cannot go to school but they still have to learn they have to do the stuff at home so we we asked them to design their daily schedules and i think that when you speak about the student voice that this should be the first thing that we all should do you know explain the kids that you know why they cannot go to school why it's not possible that it's it's important to continue learning and you know doing those things but rather than saying that you know this is the schedule that the school is giving to you uh, do what we did that we asked them to uh, you know think about what is the schedule that you think you're learning, you could do these things in the best way. And so really interesting to see like my our own son here, that he had a really like a long, it, this schedule was like a 12 hours the entire day so it started with the breakfast, and it had a little bit of mathematics, but there was a lot of breaks like play and arts. And he's a passionate uh, guitar player, so he, so he wants like like I have two guitar lessons a day, uh, outdoor activities, lunch, snack, rest in the afternoon. So these kids really understand that you know this is how I would like to do these things. But you know, if we insist now when when the schools are not able to have the kids in the school to say that you, you still have to have this 55-minute slot on doing this. Then you do something else and then you have a break. That's, that's, that goes against you know all of these ideals that you were speaking about, you know, giving students an agency to kind of own this thing and then do, uh, do the things um, that they want to do. So I, I got an email. We, we sent a, a question to some of our colleagues a couple of days ago to ask how is, the, how is the homeschooling going in different parts of the and this is mostly in the United States. But there's a one mother who sent us just a couple of minutes ago something like this, that my, my homeschool schedule is the following. Every few hours I yell, turn off all electronics and read a book. And everyone <laughs> ignores me.
0: So it's going really well. <laughs> so but so it's that's the kind of a, that's a, kind of a reality. It's much the same as traditional classrooms. I mean, you know, I've I've been I've been working with 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 classrooms with one-to-one technology in them for over 20 years now, and was actually responsible for introducing it into two or three of those schools with mixed results. Um, uh, most of the successes were due to other people, I'm sure. But you know, I can I I can remember having conversations with senior boys about them playing Call of Duty um, in. In classes, when teachers were just sitting at their desks and the teachers would be complaining about, well, you know, these kids, they just won't focus. And you're just sitting there going, you have to change the game of learning in your classroom. You've know, you got to fundamentally think, rethink about what you do and, and how you do it. Because if you're expecting compliance in this sort of environment where you're denying people voice and agency, it's just not going to work. I don't, I don't think it ever has worked. I mean, even before we had the technology, you always had the power to zone out. You always had the power to daydream. You always had to, the power as a student to work to the minimum standard possible, um, You know, it, uh, if you really wanted to. So it's, if, if, if we're not prepared to negotiate and to respect um, students as collaborators, as partners, as the main agents of learning, then we're going to get nowhere, I think. Absolutely right, Phil.
1: I'm going to now shift the conversation a little bit, Percy, to uh, another point that was raised in that World Economic Forum uh, article that Phil mentioned a moment ago, and it was around the construct of public versus private. Although in the article they really focused on partnerships external to schools as a real possibility post this pandemic, I want to touch on a, on a different kind of take on that idea of public versus private. In recent weeks, what I've been able to witness is a significant shift in the sharing of resources and practices and the solidarity in education that on the surface appears to be very sector-blind here in Australia, where where people from independent pri- uh, private schools, Catholic schools and public sharing all of their resources, making things open source. So that it's accessible for from anyone anywhere, should they, of course, have access to the internet. From your perspective, Pazzi, do you think that we could finally see a new educational partnership be born and grow in importance post this pandemic?
2: You mean here in Australia? Yeah. I I I don't know, but if you if if you insist me to give an answer, I would say probably not. Yeah. Because I, I, I think this this question question here in Australia is much much more than sharing resources. I think you know as an as an external alien almost here in Australia who doesn't understand everything that is going on. You know, I, I would I would say that since since independent schools receive um, significant amounts of taxpayers' money, that they should. Should have done that already long ago. As soon as they started to receive money for for their own own things, to make make not only resources but make the uh, physical facilities, their the swimming pools and and rugby fields and and recording studios and theaters available for those schools who don't have it. So so I, if it hasn't happened before, I don't think that it's probably not going to happen uh, after this thing, other than. In, in a very kind of a minor artificial level of making some stuff available for all the schools. But because I, I think that the more important conversation here after this, when we get through this is just like we now now in Australia, we are just right now learning that, you know, the way out of this crisis with the minimal damage is to stop thinking about yourself. Stop, yes. stop thinking about you, you and your family. But, you know, if you continue like this, then we're going to have a really hard way and many people will lose their jobs and lives and other things. We need to learn, and this is where my hope is, that here in Australia and many other parts of the world, we will probably, hopefully learn to think that, you know, in education it's the same thing, that it's not about my children's education. It's about providing great education for each and every person here. That If I want to improve my life, I can do it, and my children's and grandchildren's life, it's a, I can do it by helping everybody have a, have a better education. So that's where my hope is. It's not so much about sharing resources or making available, you know, the better, better ideas that some other schools have. But I, I don't know what you think.
1: Yeah, I, I actually share what you're, you're saying, and I think that's probably the premise of my question in many ways. Um, I'm also hopeful that post this pandemic, we start realising more and more our humanity and start realising that we're so much better together and that we exist because of each other, not in spite of one another. And and that if, if sectors could lead the example of how we can start working in collaboration with one another, you know, I'd love to see that. There are examples of that already. There are some independent schools that do share those facilities that you mentioned a moment ago, and and particularly some of them who are just secondary schools and they, they lend out a lot of their facilities to the local primary schools who are, you know, um, resource poor uh, and and facility poor. And and I've seen that happen already. I just would like to see more of it, of course, because then uh, more young people can benefit so much from Spaces and places that can empower them through through the learning of encounter, uh, but I, I remain hopeful as well that that hopefully we we can turn this around and start realizing that gee, together we can be so much more
2: uh, absolutely absolutely, and you know the, the the additional thing none of these things that we talk about alone will will be enough, but I I think one thing that we really would need in education, again, if we use this idea of, you know, coming out of, coming or growing out of this crisis, uh, becoming something better and different than we were before, uh, you know, one of those things that has been very evident here in Australia and the United States and the UK and many other countries is that the the powers who decide the education, the politicians and um, the presidents and the ministers of the countries, are now relying on, if you listen to their rhetorics, the responses to this uh, health crisis, that the common response is that I am relying from the data and knowledge and expertise of my health experts, the medical people. That's, that's the common answer here in Australia and around the world, that when the political leaders, and they, this is basically to say that they admit that they don't understand enough to be able to make a, a decision. But look at education. When have we heard last time, that the the political leaders in the United States or England or here would have said that I rely on my best experts in education and and uh, children's health and learning and well-being. When I decide, never, uh, very rarely, people people just said I know I, I went to school for twelve years so I'm I'm an expert. So so what I'm trying to say here is that that another hope that I, I can see here is that when we come out of this and grow out of this crisis, that we will we will also uh, start to ask. You know more the politicians to say that just like you you were able to cope and and you know survive in this horrible thing that we are going through by relying on the expert evidence the best people you have around let's do the same thing now in education because they, there will be no excuse to say that we can we continue uh, reforming and transforming and rematching our education systems just by using the kind of our own insights and and, and
1: knowledge'm not too sure if the politicians are going to be uh, showing educators the the credibility that you're, you're uh, agitating for right there, Parsi. But I'm fairly confident that parents across Australia and the globe are going to start celebrating teachers like never seen before. Because uh, as as you've just said earlier, the challenge of homeschooling and how difficult that is, I've spoken to so many of my friends and they're actually wanting me to come over and teach their kids um, you know, <laughs> while, uh, while, so, so they can get along with the, their normal day. So I, I actually feel that uh, there's going to be an appreciation for the skill, the expertise and the grace of teachers uh, on a scale that perhaps we've never seen. Well, that's my hope
0: anyway. That's right. Parsi, um, let's just shift the emphasis of our conversation now to your own work. Um, I want to start, if I can, by asking you why is your work, particularly your work in educational reform, so important to you?
2: Oh, to me, yeah, to um, you. <laughs> yeah you know, as, as I said earlier in the introduction, that uh, I'm, I'm a born educator. My parents were teachers. I was I was born and raised literally in a in a village primary school. So I th- I think I've grown in to, to understand uh, how important education is. And it's not only important for, for the reasons that I have had a great privilege to, you know, earn a PhD in the university and, you know, get all these things. But I, I truly believe that education is the, is the, the best opportunity to, to um, you know, change the world. And, you know, my mission in life personally is to leave this world uh, as a little bit better place than when it, what it was when I when I came there. It, it, if I can have a role in this world to to improve some things, then I've done my then I've done my thing, and and that's why the the education improving education around the world um, is is so important for me. Um, I, I cannot I cannot probably give you any better answer than this.
0: Oh, that's a pretty good one, really. I mean, we talk about improving the world. One learner at a time, uh, one student at a time, one school at a time, so that's that's, right. that's why we do what we do. If we're talking about improving the world, then what's, what, what's the most significant thing that you and the Gonski Institute are working on right now that could be transitioned into school sectors today and could help improve the world?
2: The Gonski Institute was set up a couple of years ago um, uh, under the leadership of Adrian, former minister Adrian Piccoli to... What we say, fix the inequity uh, in Australian education. So that's the that's basically the thing we do. That we work on, on uh, trying to help people, all all people, parents and educators and politicians as well, to to understand first what equity is and secondly why is it important, um, and thirdly what can we do, what we all can do to to enhance strengthen equity in Australian school system, and. Um, if we do that, if, we, if everybody does, does his or her share on this, uh, both understanding and, uh, and doing something, uh, I, I think we would have an education system here in Australia that would be much better for more people than it is now. As I said earlier, that we already have a world-class education system here, but it's not for all the children. So that's what we want to do. I'm particularly con- concerned and, and interested in, at the same time here with the... Um, uh, about the the indigenous um, children's education uh, that is similar similar issue to what the canadians and in a very very uh, lesser sense in finland will not have but those those communities and and groups of people who are who are not at the kind of a center of the focus and conversations about education are the particular interest of the konski institute as well and we also spoke about the students voice this is a, one of the one of the one of the most important things actually that we try to do through the Konsky Institute's work, both research and advocacy, is to uh, remind everybody, all, all adults, that the children's voice is absolutely critically important. And that we, have to, we, we need to listen to them as well in not only issues regarding education, but uh, all the other issues as, as, as well. And we try to be a kind of a, um, academic institution, an example in that, uh, doing that uh, as well.
0: All of that work is, is, is fantastic. Um and all of us have purpose and aspiration, which is I guess what those last two questions are about. The third question is about practice and what we learn from practice. Um and, and something we ask our game changers, what's something you've tried in your work that you wouldn't do again and why?
2: <laughs> uh, um uh, okay, this is, your, you know, there are a lot of things. If I had more time to think about it, I, I probably probably would um, give you a different answer. But l- let me tell you just a very quick story about how part of my thinking changed. Uh, this was when I was uh, I was a visiting professor at Harvard University for, for about three years. And that hap- I started that about six years ago, uh, seven years ago, actually. Uh, and that was a time when social media just, Came, came around the Twitter was a kind of a cool thing to have uh, Facebook and others where we're kind of entering into the teaching and learning especially in a higher education so I, I, I decided that in all of my classes that I that gave at Harvard that I require the students to come to the class if they if they came to my class with the social social media accounts and, and kind of a readiness to um, communicate use social media for learning and I, I tried that probably in about five or six of my courses, uh, and the experience was horrible. And it was uh, it was actually really educational for me to realize that how how naive my thinking was. That this the uh, you know having a Twitter your Twitter page open during the classes and ask people to you know communicate not only to the to the class but to the rest of the world would somehow benefit uh, benefit our learning and it didn't. I had 35 students, everybody had their lap- laptops open. I had no idea what's going on there, what they're doing. <laughs> and and so, so, you know, I came about, this is something that I wouldn't, uh, when I teach now at the University of New South Wales here, I'm actually doing the opposite. I'm asking students to switch off the laptops, you know, put them away, and uh, really focus on conversation. And uh, when I speak or somebody else speaks in the room, that you know, this is it's meant to be heard, and uh, and everything has a meaning and comes with a meaning. And it really changed the the, the way it's changed the way how students learn. And many of them, they say how kind of a how much better they feel when they don't need to, you know, pay attention to this. Then there are some students who say that they cannot, they can, they want to make notes or they want to communicate or you know check the material, but that's how it always is. But my answer to your question is that, you you know, in my in, in my long career as a teacher, I I think much more strongly now about the power of. Social human interaction in in the moment of teaching and learning than I I did before, and I understand the power of technology and the power of social media, but I don't I don't see this you know being appropriately done when the the human teaching and learning is uh, taking place.
0: Yes, it seems to me that the um, all of social media is built on a self-centeredness and a unilateral decision that any communicator can make at any point in time to cancel or cut somebody um, which being in a room with somebody you can't do you you have to work through relationship with people and in and in our work at circle we would talk about the importance of of children going on a journey from me to you to us as part of their normal and natural development Um, how is it that you think that schools can foster these sort of competencies of collaboration, these competencies that lead to uh, a sense of service, that lead to a sense of vocation, a willingness to put the needs of others before themselves.
2: Uh, read our book. Let the children play. That's where that's where the that's where the truth is. And uh, again, uh, if if I say this again, that they there's there's no better way to to build and and establish these important human skills of empathy and collaboration and you know sharing things understanding this community togetherness than uh through uh young children's play. I think it's becoming harder and harder if we if we kind of push out children through the school without them having These opportunities to learn these things—it's a very hard thing to teach these skills. Actually, Uh, none of those things that you Uh, mentioned—they can be learned if you have a situation uh, or circumstances. If you have adults like teachers and parents supporting you to do that. So, so I I think the other other way we need to change the the change the game we play in education is to understand that some of some of these important things in life we really start to start to begin to do those. Uh, much earlier than we, we often think. Waiting for the formal schooling to start and ask teachers to teach my kids to be creative and solve complex uh, problems is too late. Uh, you know, the, many, of these, many of these children, when they come to school, they already have uh, been been educated out of these, uh, many of these qualities and, and things that they would need. So that's why starting early, uh, as early as, as possible with the kids uh, is the, the best strategy for that.
1: So I just want to continue kind of down this line, Parsi, and push this a little bit further. We we know that we're now living in times of extraordinary technology um, evolution with AI and uh, automation. We know that the the globe is is, um, in the grips of a a population growth never seen before. We've got massive strain on our natural resources. And of course, Mother Nature is basically telling us all, we've stuffed up and is probably sending us to our rooms right now with uh, the issues of climate change. But um, the pandemic is probably an opportunity to remind ourselves of these necessary kind of human skills that you speak about, that students will need to kind of navigate this unpredictable world that we find ourselves in, and and skills around informed decision-making, creative problem-solving, and probably perhaps above all, adaptability. Can you talk a little bit more around how you think schools can ensure these capability skills a foster across all learning and perhaps become the curriculum as opposed to, you know, the, the add-on or, the, or just an aside.
2: Um, I, I think that there are people who are much better talking about this, you know, how to do these things in practice. And um, again, I've been, as I said earlier, I've been really inspired to see some of the some of the great schools here in Australia, here in New South Wales and Victoria and, and Queensland and different different parts that already do that, I, I often I don't know if you if you're familiar with the um, the the Peter Hutton's work at the Templestowe College and the network of uh, Future School Schools Alliance that they, they are kind of indeed, having indeed. And, and,
0: Peter, Peter Hutton's one of one of your fellow Game Changers and was uh, yeah. a, a key voice in the first series of our podcast. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you know, rather than trying to explain uh, how I feel about these things, I my answer is that talk to Peter, and because Peter can, Peter is one of those few people who can not only tell you what it looks like, but how to, how to change the game. You know, how to change the school to become a place that, you know, in to a large extent. Uh, actually cultivates exactly these qualities in young people. I've been in, in, in um, his former school, Temple College, several times, spent a lot of time there, with the, mostly with the students, you know, was, uh, listening to them and hearing, trying to understand what they do. And it is indeed a great, it's a, it's a great example of this type of uh, environment. That's why I always hear uh, in Australia, I, I tell people that don't go overseas. Don't You don't need to go to the United States or Finland or Singapore or, or England to ask for advice what to do. Just, uh, you know, listen to your own uh, thought leaders and, and kind of a pioneers who have been going through these things and have the solution. As, as Peter says, that we have a solution here in Australia already. This particular question and problem so the, the, the question is that do we really want to fix the thing or continue the same uh, kind of chaos of you know looking for a haphazard solution to complex social problems that are often wrong
0: Parsi, I think that's a really good space to, for us to finish up our conversation today um, uh, for all of our listeners um, Parsi's taught us about the, the importance of letting children play. We've talked about learning, we've talked about schooling, uh, we've talked about models, we've talked about all sorts of things, including um, uh, his personal passion for improvement. Um, His latest book is of course, Let the Children Play. um, uh, And like everything you do, Parsi, it's uh, it's it's a it's a, it's an education for educators and and it's an education in humanity. We want to thank you for the work that you're doing and celebrate you as one of our game changers.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, it's, a, it's a really an honour and pleasure as well to be with you uh, in this program and good luck with that. You do important things as well, game changers.
1: Thank you very <laughs> much. Thank you very much. I just wanted to jump in very quickly, Pasi, and also say thank you. It's it's a, a, a real privilege for Phil and I to continue to. Have a dialogue with individuals that uh, that clear focus is is about the other. And uh, there was a phrase that you used in our conversation today, and that was growing out of the pandemic. And I love that because uh, everything that you shared with us today is is about our growth and how we can continue to evolve, not only for social change but also for human endeavour and the existence of, of humanity. So uh, thank you very much for your time and patience
0: and And sharing so much of your journey with us today. Cheers. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.